This is Jim Menick, and last year I did a podcast based on my experiences at the Lexington Winter Tournament, and it seemed only fitting that I'd do the same thing again this year. So, settle back and for a few minutes we'll talk about the adventures behind the scenes at Lexington 2008. By the way, I have absolutely no intentions of editing this podcast. So, if I make funny noises um, or you know, just strange things happen, we're going to leave them in here because it takes forever to edit one of these things. And if I just say it, and get it over with, then we are like so done, so much earlier, and I can go up and read Karl Marx. And the more I read Karl Marx, the better the world will be for it. Anyhow, I made some notes, and I'll go through them. One of the things you have to remember is that the Lexington Tournament is one of the major events in the country. It has quarters bids in policy and in public forum and in Lincoln Douglas. We had a, well, a Lincoln Douglas pool of debaters, over a hundred people. We had a novice division of Lincoln Douglas, and I think we had about 60 in that division. We had public forum, and I guess I'm I don't know the numbers there. I haven't looked. There seemed to be a lot of people from Regis, so I guess there were a lot of people in public forum. Uh, There was, of course, the policy varsity division. There was a novice policy division. And on Sunday and Monday, there was round robin for Lincoln Douglas. There may have been, for all I know, a round Robin, for policy, I don't think so, but I have noticed that policy people do seem to be suckers for punishment, and perhaps there was. Now, think of all these divisions. They're all taking place in one building. 350 participants of the tournament were housed by Lexington High School. That is, 350 people found a piece of turf to sleep on Friday night or Saturday night or Sunday night or some combination thereof. Now, when I have my tournament, the bump tournament, I put up 150 people. And this is considered absolute madness by the mother who is in charge of putting up my 150 people. I can't imagine what the parents who have to put up 350 people refer to it as. It's something way past madness. The Lexington team is not run by a particularly large organization of coaches. Uh, There is the head coach, Maggie. There is uh, Michael Antonucci, who works with her in policy. And as far as I know, That is it. And, of course, there were all the willing participants behind the scenes in the tab room. And 
there was the team itself, the Lexington kids, who did their bit, and the Lexington parents. I've said this many times. You can't run a tournament. You can't run a team without parents. If you're running a team without parents, I don't know what you're doing. Um, It sounds like fun. Good luck. What's the point? Uh, Parents are the things that make tournaments happen. Parents are the things that make sure there's donuts in the judges' lounge. And, of course, in the Northeast. And I gather this is a Northeastern thing. Parents are where people get housed. Parents are there when you need them. They were running the concessions. If there's any need to understand the need for parents, Maggie's own parents were there helping out, running the concessions, paying the judges. Uh, They took care of us when we went to the dinner for the round robin. It was quite a family event. But the big family is the family of the team, not just the family of a coach or one or two people. I like that. I think that's a good thing. Because of the scope of this tournament, as I say, it's in one school, but not really in one building. Now, for those of you who have never been there, Lexington is designed as if it were in, oh, Miami, because it has buildings that you have to go outdoors to get to. So apparently, when the Lexington High School was being built, the people who were building it didn't know It was in New England. They weren't aware that they have this thing called really, really cold weather up there. And how cold is it, you ask? Okay, a couple of years ago, it was so cold, my car froze over, and we could not open the doors. So what we had to do was lift the hatchback and throw in our shortest person in the hopes that from the inside he could somehow barrel his way out. This did not succeed, so we all ended up crawling through the hatchback. We got in, we did manage to get the car started, and what we did was we drove for half an hour to warm it up enough so that we could get the doors open so that we could get out. Now, it wasn't that cold this week. It was only about 10 degrees above zero, which is in Lexington in the winter considered balmy. But as I say, for, for, for some bizarre reason, the people who built this building weren't aware that there was winter up there. And so it's not one building, it's a series of buildings, and you have to go outside. And I can just imagine the students going outside during the snowstorms that are normal up there. But in any case, for a tournament, we had one division in this building, and one division in that building, and one division in the other building. And that does lead to some confusion also, by the way. The Lincoln-Douglas part of the festivities began on Friday, going into break rounds on Saturday afternoon. Saturday afternoon was when the policy began, because we would have, of course, freed up a lot of rooms to make this happen. The Lincoln-Douglas Varsity Division has four single-flighted rounds on Friday. They start about, oh, I don't know, 3 o'clock, something like that, four single-flighted rounds. And then 
two double-flighted rounds on Saturday, and then the breaks begin. But as I say, they are far-flung, and it's not the best situation when you have the tab room over here and you have the debaters over there. It requires the use of walkie-talkies. Now, I have to admit, this was one of the best walkie-talkie tournaments I've ever been to. Now, I've been to walkie-talkie tournaments where I have had to take the walkie-talkies and just hit the tournament directors over the head with them. At Big Bronx, for instance, the first thing they did was hand me a walkie-talkie, and the first thing I did was hand it to somebody else. Um, The thing about walkie-talkies is everybody talks in them, no one ever answers them, and... You know, it's sort of like, imagine this. You know how they have on Star Trek when they say, you know, Commander Riker, come to the bridge. And Commander Riker says, I'll be right there. And you always wonder, how come, you know, it's only him? How come he's the only one that got the message? And you really think, well, probably they all got the message. They all had to listen to it. And, you know, they're all complaining. I'm not Commander Riker. Why do I have to listen to this message? Well, anyhow, that's the way these walkie-talkies work. Well, anyhow, they had the walkie-talkies, but they didn't try to issue us any... And I'm going to hand it to them. They managed to make this work. There was very little disconnect, despite the fact that we were in multiple buildings. Every now and then, some kid would call me on my cell phone. Some kid named Jeremy, I think. I have no idea. Anyhow, he would call me, and he would be over there where the novices were, and he would tell me something. And I'd go, okay, what? Okay, well, all right, well, whatever, and uh, I'll I'll send Gabe over. You know, so, yeah, we, we managed to communicate to some extent. Speaking of which, uh, Gabe and I go way back in this business. I think the first tournament that he was a Myrmidon for me in TAB was back in 1943. Um, I really don't know why he hasn't been able to graduate in all these years, but uh, he's always been around, and he's a good egg, and he really does keep things moving. And he was our major domo, or Myrmidon, or whatever you want to call him. And um, as a matter of fact, I noticed there was a list on their table of major domos. I like to take credit for the fact that I invented the major domo. I also invented the runner wrangler, but... uh, it was Homer who invented the Myrmidon, so I don't take any credit for that whatsoever. So, as I say, we had a pretty far-flung, complicated tournament to run. And I'm looking at my notes here. And, uh, oh, this is important. Despite all the complications, those of you who recall last year, last year at Lexington, much, much fruit was thrown at Lexington runners. Uh, This was a a necessity. I mean, the only way we could really get them to do anything was to throw fruit at them. Now, it wasn't uh, fruit that broke on when you hit them. I mean, it was was little uh, clementines. So it wasn't like we were throwing bananas. It's hard to throw bananas, and it wasn't pineapples, which would would maybe kill them or something like that. It It was clementines, which send a message. Yeah, a clementine. Somebody throws a clementine at you that, that sends a message. And this year, we did not have to send that message. And I have to admit that I had uh, taken that there were clementines in the judges' lounge, and I did make sure that we had a good supply, but we didn't need them, and uh, I ate them. 
So I admit that this year, I instead of throwing the fruit at the runners, the novices from Lexington, this year I ate the fruit. And, and that's a good thing. That is a very good thing from uh, the point of view of Lexington novices who didn't get hit over the head with fruit. And I was healthier as a result of this. I didn't have to eat a lot of, uh, you know, crumb cake or bagels. You know, I got to eat clementines. So, like I say, beneficial to everyone involved. Now, let's see. The day itself did not get off to a great start. Here in New York, uh, the night before had been precipitous in the sense of there had been precipitation. And um, it's really not the correct use of the word precipitous, by the way, but I'm not editing this, so you know, pretend that it is the correct use of the word. So we all had two-hour delays, and at least as far as I was concerned, I mean, my bus person called me up at the crack of dawn and said, you know, we're leaving, not a problem, before I even got out of bed. And sure enough, it wasn't a problem, but we left the school at about 9 o'clock, which uh, maybe 9.15, and our scheduled time to leave was 9 o'clock. And school hadn't even started yet. I went into the building to you know, check in with the office and to take the kids and all this sort of stuff that I normally do. And there was no one there to normally do it with. And I was not alone on this. Uh, Newberg, Cheryl Kazmarek, who was also tabbing with us, uh, also uh, had a late start. Monticello had a late start. Now, Monticello always worries me when they have a late start, because when they have a late start, they just don't show up. But uh, they did show up. I'm really glad to see. Um... Yeah, so all of uh, us New Yorkers, we had a little bit of a dicey opening moment, but it did not affect us, and we were able to get there uh, in plenty of time for the tournament. I just had a little glitch here, so there may be some timing issues between what you last heard and what you next hear. But as I say, I'm not going to edit the crap out of this thing, so just suck it up, fella. Anyhow, the setup of the program, the registration for the program, was done through tabroom.com, which is Chris Palmer's program, which, if I'm not mistaken, he originally wrote for the Massachusetts Forensic League, and is now used by a lot of people in the Northeast. It's not unlike Joy of Tournaments, uh, you register, uh, it'll do some tabbing, so forth and so on. I use it for the Mid-Hudson League. We use, I use it for the uh, New York City uh, Catholic Forensic League. We use it for the New York State Forensic League. Uh, Yale uses it. We use it a lot of places. Now, now you can enter your, your judges in this program. And when you enter your judges, you have to click certain buttons. I want to make this a novice judge. I want to make this an, an experienced judge. I want to do this. I want to do that. I want to do the other thing. There's all kinds of functions that you build in. Now, at some point early on in preparing for the tournament, I was talking to Maggie, and one of the problems with those four rounds that Lincoln Douglas has on Friday is well, you need all the best judges that you can get to judge Lincoln Douglas. So I was going through the various fields, the pools rather, of judges. And I said, you know, you got some good judges over here in public forum. You got some good judges over here in 
uh, novice LD because you know when you register you'll put your judges where they're going to cover your responsibility on the other end you know in the tap room we'll take those judges and put them where they're best used so anyway I told Maggie that so and so and such and such um, were should be moved well anyhow I looked at my registration a couple of days later you know, just to double check everything before going you know the registration sheet that tabroom.com puts out and it had not only did it say this but it said this in big bold red letters that such and such a judge one of my judges was and I quote useless this is a useless judge now, of course, I knew what the situation was. I mean, what I had told Maggie to move the judges, and obviously, for whatever back-end reason, the existence of this judge, or the, you know, the division the judge was supposed to be in, hadn't, had not been noted, and I figured, you know, I'd, I'd deal with this, and I asked Chris about it, and he said, yeah, no problem, he fixed it up. But apparently, one judge made it all the way to the tournament, and remained useless. And this was one of the Monticello judges, Hassan. Now, apparently he got there and they're signing up for the tournament and some poor schmuck kid at the registration table looks up at him and says, you know, this Hassan Massey is a useless judge. I would have so loved to have been there at that moment. Now, when I found out that Hassan had been ranked as a useless judge, this was about a day and a half later, and I assure you, he was still, well, not happy. I'm not a useless judge. And Sabrina would just break up every time he said this. I come all the way up here. I'm not a, what do you mean I'm a useless judge? Hassan, you're not real. I mean, you may be a useless judge, but... Um, it's, it's a bureaucratic kind of uselessness as compared to a spiritual kind of uselessness. And I assure you, I know a useless judge when I see one. And, well, you're, you're not useless. And it was only because some buttons were not clicked. I don't know, a useless judge. But I thought that was very entertaining. And I, I do appreciate a program, especially a registration program, where you enter the name of your judges and they look at the name and say, well, this, is a, this, this person is useless. I mean, we say that a lot in the tab room. But to be able to say this right up front in your registration, well, you've got useless judges here. Um, I think it's really a giant step forward for artificial intelligence. And uh, I look forward to using this feature of the program next year when I use it for my bump tournament. So, let's see... Uh, my goal, okay, we're in the tab room. I had set up all the, the data. I mean, I took it off of Chris's program, put it into Evil TRPC, and I did the varsity and I did the novice. Chris was handling the public forum, and when Cheryl showed up, I put it on the little you know flash drive. We put it on her computer, so forth and so on. And realistically speaking, the novice gig is a fairly simple gig at a tournament like this. I mean, you do 
want to, you know, suss out the judges, make sure you have, you know, who the good judges are so you can put them in the right places and all this sort of stuff, you know, get the useless judges and put them where they won't do any damage. But, uh, yeah, 60 people, I mean, it's just enough so that the, the program works fine with 60 people. It's just one division running on a machine and a piece of cake. So my goal while I was here uh, was to work on my district tournament. I'm the district chairman for the New York State District, and we're doing it in joy of tournaments, which is just like Chris's program, except you pay for it, except you don't have to pay for it for districts because Lord knows I wouldn't pay for it. Uh, anyhow, uh, yeah, it's bad enough having to do districts. Give me a break. Anyhow, um, I figured, well, this is a good opportunity to get it programmed. But at the same time, uh, Thursday night, the night before the tournament, I had taken my mother out to dinner, and she told me how the Menick family had brought the first lesbians to our hometown, and I thought that was a pretty good story, so I was rather torn on, well, Saturday when I should have been tabbing, I guess, um, or should have been, well, I guess I should have been working on putting together the district um, information and setting up Joy of Tournament, which, turn tournaments, which, by the way, I still have not done, but, um, I have to admit, I was sort of taken by the story of how the Menics brought the first lesbians to our hometown, and I thought that would be a good blog entry. So I ended up spending most of Saturday writing that up and doing absolutely nothing in aid of setting up districts. But uh, I did ultimately get that story um, on on my blog. Um, the part of the, to me, the interesting part of the story is that my mother told it to me. But uh, you know, what can I say? If you're curious, it is, you know, quackian.blogspot.com. Feel free to read it and find out how the Menics brought the lesbians to our hometown. Well, let's see. One of the problems I was having during this tournament was, 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 was printer issues. I was having serious printer issues. Print, serious printer issues. I'm not editing this. You're just stuck with it. Sorry. You know, stop complaining. Anyhow, my printer or the MHL printer that we had bought, ooh, I guess we bought it at the end of last year. And we spent good MHL money on this cheap printer. It died. I mean, it did not die. It, 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 it essentially went rogue on us. And so, you know, you would print something, and it would print a little bit, and then it would go, and it would eat the papers. It would almost print something, and the, the paper would almost be coming out of the printer, and then it would, like, pull it back, and you'd be, like, you'd be fighting it. It was horrible. And I thought it was, like, just in some kind of aberration. And I did everything I could. I turned everything in the place on and off, which is the number one IT way of handling things. I'll turn it on and off again and then call me again tomorrow. Uh, but I did that many times. I turned the printer on and off. I turned the computer on and off. I turned the, you know, the lights in the room on and off. I turned the iPod on and off. Everything went on and off, but I assure you, no help. It kept eating the papers. I gave up. And, well, the good news is, 
we had an internet connection, so I gave up. I ordered a new printer. The new printer, by the way, arrived today. I mean, I ordered it, what, Sunday, Saturday, and it arrived today, and it's Wednesday. I love the internet. This time I got a serious printer. This is a printer not unlike the one Chris was using. And because, uh, like I say, he was there with us, and this was a nice big printer that looks, looks solid. Mine looked cheap, acted cheap, and died, as I say, going rogue. So anyhow, I got a new printer. But meanwhile, I'm in this tournament, and I'm theoretically going to have to put out schematics and results and all this kind of stuff. And people are going to expect me to print them up. So, you know, all right. So, Chris, we had a printer. There was apparently the parents... See, parents are good. Parents had given us a printer, nice big laser printer, HP laser printer. And Chris got me a driver. I put it on my computer, and I hooked myself up to this nice big printer, and it was nice and fast. You could print ballots. I love printing ballots. Ballots just come flying out. Foom, foom, foom. It's just great. So I'm using this printer. Next thing you know, some damn Lex Weegian schmuck novice is taking my printer. Yeah, they're literally, I'm standing there like printing. And then, you know, we're taking the printer. No, no, you're not. I'm taking the, no, you know. So we had this argument. Next thing, next thing you know, they took the printer, give me another printer. And the reason they took my printer is because they're printing awards. You know how they, people will print these certificates and they wanted them to be printed on nice paper and apparently the printer they had was running out of toner. So they'll give me the one that's running out of toner. So that they can print the other one. So, okay, we make the trade. They give me the one that's crappy. It's running out of toner. Now it's working fine. So I get going again. Five minutes later, some schmuck Lex Ouijian novice. Oh, we want to switch the printers again, brother. So this went on about 27 times. It was switch the printer. I got to get new drivers. The whole thing going. Finally, they gave me back the printer I had had in the first place, and that was the one I was able to keep for the rest of the weekend, including the round robin, because essentially I tied it to my body. So if they were going to switch it, they would have had to switch me too, you know, because, you know, how many Lexwegian novices can you put up with going, anyhow. I have to admit that the printer that was my printer that I had brought with me I simply abandoned, as far as I know, that abandoned printer is, well, still sitting there, and it probably will still be sitting there when we come back next year. Anyhow, the tournament ran really well, I think. Uh, Pete Krupenbacher came up from Lexington, uh, from Lakeland, rather, excuse me, and uh, Pete and I have been doing this uh, novice side for years now, and I always love seeing him at this tournament, which is really the only time all year that we get together, but we always have a good time. So he was helping me. And one of the things that you really get a benefit of here from having had to put together all those numbers of judges for the first four rounds, single flighted, and you have a hundred and I think it was 114, which means that you have to have, you know, pretty much about, you know, 57 judges. That's a lot of judges. They had more than 57. They were able to put together, even early on, they were able to put the, you know, the best judges in the bubble rounds. That's what you do in tab. If you're doing tab and you're paying attention to your job, you are putting the best judges into the rounds that need the best judges. In other words, if a loss is going to knock somebody out of the running, 
That's where you want a judge who can do the best adjudicating. And it's not a question of saying what a judge likes or dislikes, but simply a question of experience. You know who the judge is. I have a rule. We will rank the judges in advance of the tournament. So I've ranked plenty of these judges. Joe Vaughn, who was working with Cheryl, ranked them later on. We had a lot of agreement about what the ranks of the judges ought to be. So an A judge is the high rank, and that's the one who's going to get the tough rounds. Those are the rounds that are close, that matter. And then what you do when you're actually pairing the rounds and putting assigning judges, what you do is there's a little list that will show up. And you say, okay, you want to, I want to take a judge. So what you simply do is from that list, you always take whoever is the judge at the top. Simple as that. You never think about it because thinking about it allows you to say, well, I want this judge, oh, this round, these, that. No, you don't do it that way. You simply say, here's a pool of 30 judges who can judge anything. And then when you need a judge who can judge anything, you essentially randomly put them into those rounds. I do this even with the novices. I mean, obviously at the novice level, I don't have all the great coaches available to me. I don't have, you know, the ex-debaters who have won TOC uh, 27 times and all this sort of stuff, but I still know the difference. I know who the good judges are. I know who the ones are that are the parents that don't speak English. I know you hold these people. There's, there is no mystery. And the worst thing, of course, is schools that bring parents with them and the parents don't speak English and they put them in the judge pool. I mean, I'm a great fan of parent judging, but uh, not parent judging is a second language. I expect parent judges to be competent in the activity. I expect their teams to have trained them and I expect them to be not, of course, able to flow extreme speed, but certainly, you know, confident enough that if a good argument is made, they'll have heard it and registered it. And a lot of, not a lot, but a handful of teams will try to get away with a fast one. They're going to get the benefit of all the good judging, and they're going to bring their crappy judges in, who really are not incompetent, but just incapable of doing this, and say that they're real judges. And of course, on my end, what I try to do is weed them out which is almost doubly bad because this way not only have they brought in stinker judges and gotten away with it and gotten good judges themselves, but they've also gotten away without having to pay for judges. So it's annoying. But we do it because, you know, the vast majority of people do the right thing. We want to make sure they have the best tournament possible. And I have to say the pools of judges. I mean, the pool of judges was fantastic. And when they came time to, you know, put good judges uh, on a pairing, it was not a problem. And my favorite thing was looking over the shoulder of Joe and Cheryl when they put together the bid round. Okay, the bid round, of course, is octos. There's a quarter's bid. So the octos panels were spectacular. I mean, this was just phenomenal judging. There is no one who would go to this tournament and think they did not get a fair deal when it came time to either, you know, be on the bubble or get that bid. So good stuff, really good stuff. It's nice to see. It makes you very satisfied on our end. One of the things, by the way, that I learned, and frankly, I hadn't really, I mean, this is sort of an obvious thing, the way the software works, but, you know, you break to numbers that are 
uh, factors of two, you know, so that we have one winner, and then you have two people debating four, and then eight, and 16, and 32, and 64, and so forth. Well, probably not all that much, so forth. We do occasionally have partial doubles, where the numbers are not enough to break to full doubles. You know, full doubles would be 32 people, but they're more than enough to break uh, that, that 16 isn't enough. Let's say you have 75 people, especially novices. I like novices to get as many opportunities as possible to have rounds. Now, if you have 75, breaking to 16, um, is, whoa, that's tight. But breaking to 32, well, that's almost half the field. So uh, breaking to 24, on the other hand, perfect. Okay, so, you know, you have the 2, 4, 8, 16, now you would go to 32, and half of that, obviously, is 24. And for some reason, I had this in my head that you could only do a partial double at 24. But, of course, you can do a partial at whatever part you want to make it. Let me think about it if I want to make, you know, because some people are going to get by, so you just fluctuate the number of buys. So what we were able to do, which was spectacular, I think, was break all the winning records. Everybody with a 3-2 record in the novice field got to break, and I finally learned how to do this. And it's one of those really duh moments, because I guess it was probably uh, Cruz was explaining this to me, or somebody, I don't know, but probably Cruz, who likes to explain the obvious to me, because um, I'm always so bad <laughs> at figuring out the obvious. And I'm looking at him, it's like, duh, how can I not have known this all these years? But anyhow, so we were able to do that. It was very pleased with that. Um, anyhow, this is an aside, by the way. I mean, I mentioned Pete Krupenbacher, and Pete and I worked this tournament. Pete is uh, an army guy. I mean, he looks like an army guy. He looks like the kind of guy that if you were putting together an army, you'd, you'd want him like to be in. You wouldn't want, like, Bubba Fett. Forget that, you know, clone army. You want a clone army of this guy because he looks like an army guy. And he actually has a, ha a hobby, which is the, um, you know, battle recreation, uh, revolutionary war, battle recreation. But the odd thing was, and he was telling me about this, and I actually I sort of knew he had done it. But one of the things I learned this weekend was that uh, he recreates battles that never happened. This is um, so postmodern. This is so Baudrillard. I mean, this, this is pretty magical to me. I, I really like this concept. Anyhow, um, I said, like I said, that's, that, that's simply an aside. Um, you know, we had some good times, though, because, uh, like I said, Pete was there and Cruz was, was with us often. And, you know, we, we had lunch one day, and I'm going to Spain this spring and... Uh, Pete had just been there. John, of course, has family from Spain. And the other woman who was with us, Sarah Kirsch from uh, Ridge, uh, had lived in Spain for years. So they were all telling me about, you know, all their favorite uh, fascist uh, shrines that I should go to. Uh, Cruz is a big fascist uh, shrine fan. Uh, apparently, uh, he can't go to a country without checking out the fascist uh, shrines. And apparently the ones to Franco are among the best. And uh, so they were recommending that and then telling me how to avoid have being pickpocketed and all this sort of stuff. So I, I got a lot of good, you know, travel information out of everybody. Um, one of the strange parts of the tournament was Saturday night. 
I get a phone call about quarter to eleven, and uh, at night, and I mean, I'm you know, I'm pretty much just dozing off at this point. Uh, seriously, trying to make that doze off a you know a commitment for the, for a few hours, and the phone rings, and it's Maggie, and she's asking me where one of my judges is. Where's Matt? Where is Matt? Matt is supposed to be housed, but uh, the parents that are supposedly housing him showed up, and uh, they're all looking for him, and the school is empty. I mean, there's literally no one in the school, and uh, except for Maggie and these parents, and uh, not Matt. Now, my assumption is that Matt somehow went somewhere else, not that he's... Uh, you know, in the basement of Lexington, or one of the many basements of Lexington, considering the multiple buildings, hiding out. But, um, yeah, I call his cell phone. Now, it turns out that I'm not calling his cell phone. I call his cell phone, and his, and his mother answers. Now, when you call someone's cell phone, you don't expect their mother to answer. It took me, like, I was fairly tired, so it took me a while to realize that, in fact, I wasn't calling his cell phone, but I had actually called his mother at her house. And, hi, I'm, I'm looking for your lost son, in the middle of nowhere. You haven't seen him. And of course she's from the school of what have you done to my son? Well, yes. Anyhow, we did, uh, we sorted that out. I said, well, I mean, let's face it. He goes to college. He's probably spending every day of his life in a drunken stupor anyhow. So this should be no different. So I'll call you later if he turns up. Um, now he did turn up the next day and of course had played entirely cozily, and the people who screwed up were the parents who ought, who had never apparently gotten the message that they shouldn't have showed up. But um, it does remind one to keep track of one's judges, because although it's fairly hard, and I, I, I'm going to warn you on this, it is fairly hard to lose a debater. It is very easy to lose a judge, because you are, as a coach, so worried about losing debaters that you tend not to lose them. But judges don't register in your brain for some reason. So when you're doing a head count at the bus stop or something, you count all the kids, but you never count the judges. So if you're going to leave anybody behind, you're going to leave a judge behind. And, you're gonna, and it's very embarrassing when you do that. Take my word for it. So make sure you have a list of your judges as well as your debaters. Well, let's see. The... Uh, Moving right along, the next day, Sunday, we had a tournament ended, fine, we had a nice Thai dinner on Saturday night, they have a nice Thai restaurant there in Lexington. Saturday, uh, Sunday was the round robin, now normally the round robin runs with two judges in each round, and that's very hard to pair, of course, but they did not have enough judges to do the two in the round, so we only had to do one, so judges weren't really uh, much of a problem. Um, now, as it turned out, I had John Cruz in the tab room with me most of the time. He was one of the judges, and he did judge a couple of rounds, but he was helping me out in tab, and I'm a, as anyone knows, a firm advocate of the fact that nobody should ever tab alone. Tabbing alone is a mugs game. Don't do it. So anyway, I had John with me, and I'm, I'm moving along, zip, 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 and and and, and things are the pairing. I'm up to about round three or so, and the pairings just don't seem to be working the way they ought to. And and John, 
pretty much said, you know, you are like so setting yourself up for a fall here. And the problem with the round robin schematic, so to speak, you know, getting everybody to debate everybody, and there's no program that does this as far as I know, at least for 14 people. There is something for 16 people, but not for 14 people. And the problem is it's easy enough to know how to get everybody to debate everybody, but what you really have to do is get everybody to debate everybody and to have everybody debate everybody three times on the F and three times on the neg, and that's the problem. And it looked as if I wasn't going to come close. And John's suggestion, which I have to admit I resisted for a while, was to use the old results from a tournament a couple of years ago that I had paired. The round robin I had done a couple of years ago I said, look, that worked out fine, so let's use that one. And what we'll do is we'll just go by the uh, results off of victory briefs. God damn. We're going by the results off of victory briefs. We'll just plug in who was in each round against whom. And that'll work because obviously it worked then. And, well, I admit we did it. And it turns out that two years ago I had made a couple of mistakes, which, which we managed to fix. I now will advertise this to the world. I have a grid for 14 people that works perfectly, where every person gets a round with every other person, and every person gets three affirmatives, three negatives. If you need this, let me know. It'll be yours. But I now have it for the future. Very nice. And I have to really thank John for helping me work this out, realizing what the problem was going to be, and helping me sort this out. Because, uh, well, you know, obviously you want everybody to have a good tournament. You want everything to be correct. Now, one of the things we realized now on Sunday, we had five rounds. And then we're, we were going to have dinner at about 8 o'clock originally, and we managed to move it down to 7. But there was a gap of a couple of hours. And what I figured would be a good idea would, would, was to have a trivia contest. Now, we play a game at Hen Hud, which we call Bean Trivia. Every person gets three beans. And then I'm going to ask questions. I'm going to tell you what the category is. And I'm even going to tell you if it's a hard question or an easy question. And you have the option to answer the question. If you answer the question correctly, you get another bean. If you answer it incorrectly, you lose a bean. However, you also have the option of passing the question to somebody else. If they answer the question correctly, you give them one of your beans. And if they don't answer it, they give you one of their beans. So we play bean trivia once in a while at Hen Hunt, and it proves, you know, proves out, you know, works out pretty well. So I figured it would make sense here to fill a couple of hours. So the first thing in the morning, uh, on our way to the tournament, and we stopped at Starbucks. I got myself one of those, uh, you know, quintuple uh, latte, whatever's, you know, how many shots of espresso can you put in one glass? I uh, got one of those. And I bought a bag of unground coffee beans. I mean, we had to have some kind of beans I use. Uh, navy beans, uncooked navy beans here at Hen Hud. But I didn't have any navy beans. We used coffee beans. So anyhow, we set it up. And during the day, I mean, I would say pretty much most of the day was spent during the tournament putting together trivia questions. And I had Pete and Sarah and John in the room. And I was simply, we had the categories. And I would say, you know, just name a country, and they would name a country, and then I'd come up with a question. 
or you know, name a Disney movie, whatever, Disney being one of the categories. So um, we did this, had plenty of questions, and then we got everybody. And I think the game went pretty well. Uh, we had great crappy prizes. We had a you know, weird baby calendar and a, a stag calendar, as in like deer. I mean, really, the most boring calendar I've ever seen. And a Zac Efron from Hairspray calendar. Uh, frankly, I thought that I, it was a toss-up between Zac and the dead babies. Uh, for the for the the prize that you most wanted to like never like be in the room with, but um, anyhow, I've, as Robbie Grabowitz said, there seems to be a great, shall we say, disconnect between debaters and trivia. I mean, debaters like the idea of trivia, but they so suck at it. And just to give you. A couple of highlights. My two favorite answers. Now, we had something called a three-beaner. And a three-beaner is a question that you get no penalties. You don't lose a bean, and you're going to get three beans if you can answer this. And here was the question that we threw out. This is one of the three-beaner questions. This is the question, name the five Marx Brothers. And we asked this question of a kid from the Bronx, and the kid from the Bronx answer was, Carl, he had brothers? And my second favorite question was... What Disney title, what Disney title character, feature film title character never speaks in the film? Now, a lot of people think that Bambi is the answer, but the answer is really Dumbo. But the answer at the Lexington Round Robin was Fantasia. So... That pretty much sums up the weekend. I think it was a great tournament. I think everybody had a lot of fun. I think that the bids that were handed out, so to speak, were hard fought but well adjudicated. And I just love this tournament, and I love doing it. I love being there for four days. That's the longest I think I go to anything all year. I get to see people like Pete, who I don't normally see. I get to have fun with uh, Gabe. I, I'm sure he'll he'll just be there forever because he hasn't graduated yet. I don't see why he'd start now. Maggie seems to have everything well under control and uh, a lot of fun. So if you were there and you saw the other side of it, now you know what was going on with us. And if you weren't there, well, I hope I see you there next year. And uh, just be prepared. I will be, you know, I do keep fruit. Just in case. You never know. So the fruit, I'll have it. So don't try anything. See you.